Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in uh, Song of Solomon in chapter 5. In Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and reading verses 9 uh, down to 16. What is your beloved more than another beloved, O most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? And my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among ten thousand. His head is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms are rods of gold, set with jewels. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. His mouth is most sweet, and he is altogether desirable. This is my beloved, and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. In her novel, Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen tells the story of two very different sisters, Eleanor and Marianne Dashwood. Eleanor is quiet and reserved, while Marianne is loud and impulsive. And on one occasion, they're speaking about a man, Edward Ferrers, who has recently appeared on the scene and is showing a romantic interest in Eleanor. And as they're speaking, Eleanor, with her usual reserve, says, I do not attempt to deny that I think very highly of him, that I greatly esteem him, that I like him. Marianne can't believe that someone could be so cautious, so careful about expressing their feelings, especially concerning matters of the heart. And she blurts out, esteem him, like him, cold-hearted Eleanor, oh, worse than cold-hearted, ashamed of being otherwise. Use those words again, and I will leave the room this very moment. Well, this evening we're returning to the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, and we're looking at verses 9 down to 16, where we find the bride very much wearing her heart on her sleeve as she speaks about her beloved. And we're looking at this under two headings, the request and the reflection. The request and the reflection. First we have the request, and that's in verse 9. Here the bride highlights her conversation with her friends. As we come to these verses, we can remember the context in verses 2 down to 8. This morning we noted the approach in verses 2 and 3. The bride had heard her beloved knocking on her door and asking her to let him come in. But she had refused his request and told him that it wasn't a convenient time. We went on to note the absence, verses 4 down to 6. The bride eventually comes to her senses, she rises and she opens the door, but upon opening the door she discovers that her beloved has removed himself, he has turned away, he has gone away, she is left seeking him, but she cannot find him, she is left calling out for him, but there is no answer. And finally we noted the appeal in verses 7 and 8, as the bride goes looking for her beloved, she is found and she is beaten by the watchman of the city, but her desire to find her beloved remains the same and she meets with the daughters of Jerusalem, her friends and her contemporaries and she tells them that if they see her beloved, let them know that she is sick with love, that she cannot go on without him. We now come to the conversation in verse 9. 
the daughters of Jerusalem proceed to address the bride, and they call her the most beautiful among women. That is what the king had called her back in chapter 1. Back in chapter 1, she felt so unattractive, she felt so unappealing, she didn't want anyone looking at her, she was embarrassed about her whole appearance, and the king had come up to her and told her that she was the most beautiful among women. There was no one as attractive, there was no one as appealing to him as she was. And now her friends call her the most beautiful among women. They are reminding her that that is how the king saw her. And if the king saw her in this way, then that is how they also saw her, the most beautiful among women. But the daughters of Jerusalem also asked the bride a question. What is your beloved more than another beloved? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? The bride has just told them to tell her beloved that she is sick with love, that she is fainting without him, she is failing without him, she is falling apart without him. And now her friends are asking her, what is so special about him? Why are you fainting without him? Why are you failing without him? Why are you falling apart without him? Why have you gotten yourself into such a panic-stricken state over his absence? Why are you going on and on about him? Why, why are you risking everything just to find him and be with him? And you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we're being reminded that fellowship with the Lord's people is important. Fellowship with the Lord's people is important. The woman in this song is speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, speaking to her friends. She has asked them to tell her beloved that she is sick with love, verse 8. They have now asked her what is so special about her beloved, verse 9. And she is going to tell them all about her beloved in verses 10 to 16. She is having fellowship. She is having communion with her friends who are living in Zion, Jerusalem, the holy city of God's people. And fellowship with the Lord's people is vital to the life of faith. In his commentary, James Durham writes, Spiritual communion amongst professors or believers is not only a duty, but a spiritual means being rightly made use of to further our communion with Christ. I'll say that again. Spiritual communion amongst professors or believers is not only a duty, but a special means being rightly made use of to further our fellowship with Christ. This morning I said that when our communion, our fellowship with the Lord is broken, the easiest thing to do is for a person to break off their communion, their fellowship with the Lord's people. But our communion, our fellowship with the Lord's people is the Lord's divinely appointed means of restoring our fellowship with him. Restoring our communion with him. Fellowship with other Christians. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Partners in the gospel is vitally important in the life of faith. We, we neglect it at our peril. I, I cannot say that enough. You don't get any closer to the Lord from being absent from his people. You don't get any closer to the Lord from being far away from his people. Fellowship with the Lord comes through fellowship with his people. 
But as we consider this verse, we're also being reminded about the encouragement that we ought to give and that we ought to receive as we have fellowship with the Lord's people. The woman in this song is encouraged to remember who her beloved is and who she is. The daughters of Jerusalem urge her to remember that the king, her beloved, sees her as being the most beautiful among women. And they urge her to remember and to talk to them about her beloved, about the king. And that's what we are being encouraged to do, friends, as we have fellowship with the Lord's people, as we have communion with the Lord's people. We ought to be reminding one another about how the Lord sees us, not how the world sees us, not how other people see us, but how the Lord sees us. And even more importantly, we ought to be talking with one another about who our Lord is. Who our Jesus is, what's so central about him, what is so significant about him, what is so special about him. I don't know how many conversations I have with people in the course of a day and the course of a week. And it seems that there are three main topics of conversation that people have at this moment in time. They want to talk about COVID. They want to talk about the cost of living. They want to talk about the climate or the weather. But you know, friends, there is a fourth sea that people ought to be talking about, that the Lord's people ought to be talking about as they get together, as they have fellowship together, as they have communion together. And it's not the church. It is not the clergy. Easiest thing in the world is to talk about ministers and what ministers are doing wrong, what ministers are getting wrong. No, the fourth sea that we should be talking about is Christ, who Christ is And how Christ views his bride, his people. Well, that's the request. These women coming to this woman and saying to her, What is your beloved more than another beloved, most beautiful among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? But we move from the request to the reflection. Look at verses 10 to 16, where the bride now highlights her contemplation of her beloved. And the bride begins by giving a description of her beloved's appearance, verses 10 to 16. She starts by making a general statement, verse 10. She claims that her beloved is radiant and ruddy. He is not pale and pasty. His skin has got a healthy glow from being active, and not just active, but also outdoors. And she claims that her radiant and ruddy beloved is distinguished or chief among 10,000. He stands out in a large crowd. There is no one quite like him. No one comes close to him. He is head and shoulders above every other man. He is in a category of his own. As she goes on to describe his head, look at verse 11. His head is the finest gold. It is dazzling. It is magnificent. And his hair, his locks are black as a raven. He is not going bald. He is not going grey. He is youthful with thick hair, wavy hair, and dark hair, like the hair of a raven. She goes further and describes his face. Look at verses 12 and 13. His eyes are like doves in streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. At one level, she is highlighting the whiteness, the health of his eyes. His eyes aren't clouded. His eyes aren't yellow or jaundiced. His eyes are white. They are like Milk, a shimmering pool of milk. But she is also highlighting the moisture, the tears, the compassion of his eyes, the 
any time he looks at her, her uh, his eyes begin to water like a pool of water. His cheeks, she says, are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. She's speaking about his beard. And she's saying here that his beard is fragrant, like expensive aftershave. I don't know what Roddy's beard is like. I don't know what Spangy or Craig's beards are like. But maybe their wives would be able to say that their beards smell like an expensive aftershave. Or maybe they smell worse. But this bride is saying his beard smells like the most expensive aftershave you can possibly get. She goes on and says that his lips are like lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Every word that he speaks is precious. They're like an expensive sap dripping from the trees. None of his words aren't worth listening to. None of his words can be discounted. None of his words can be dismissed. None of his words can be said to be irrelevant to this present age. His eyes are like liquid myrrh. She goes further still and describes his body. Look at verses 14 and 15. His arms are like rods of gold set with jewels. His chest is like polished ivory covered with sapphires. His legs are like alabaster columns set on bases of gold. These are all images of strength, images of stability, images of solidity. This man is no pushover. In today's terms, we might say he is built like a tank. He is built like one of the Stoltman brothers from Invergordon, the, the world's strongest men. And when, when this woman is held in his arms, she feels so safe, so secure. She goes even further, describes his whole appearance. Verse 15, his appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. Lebanon was famous for its large aromatic cedar trees, trees that were used in the construction of Solomon's great temple in Jerusalem. And it's almost as if when the bride is describing her beloved here, that she finds herself unable to put into words what she is thinking, what she is feeling, what she wants to say. And so all she can say is, he is like the temple. That is how splendid he is. I cannot think of anything greater, anything more majestic than the temple. That is what my beloved is like. And she closes by describing his mouth. Look at verse 16 again. His mouth is most sweet. She has already spoken about his lips. And the words coming from his lips being like liquid myrrh. But now she speaks about his mouth, his palate, his kisses being most sweet. All the ways that he shows his love for her. All the ways that he shows his affection toward her. They are all worthy of praise and admiration. And having focus on her beloved's appearance... The bride gives her assessment of him. Look at verse 16. Every husband, every wife knows that their spouse has faults. They know that they have failings. They know that they have flaws. And perhaps no one else knows about them, but they do. It might be something small. It might be something serious. In his book, Dangerous Calling, Paul Tripp speaks about his own marriage. And he says, I was a very angry man. When Luella would approach me with yet another instance of this anger, I would always do the same thing. I would wrap my robes of righteousness around me, activate my inner lawyer, remind her once again of what a great husband she had, all the ways that I made life easier. What I am about to share next is both humbling and embarrassing. On one occasion, as Luella was confronting me with yet another instance of my anger, I got on a roll and actually said these deeply humble words. 95% of the women in our church would like to be married to a man like me. 
Luella very quickly informed me that she was in the 5%. But the bride in this song sees no fault in her beloved. No flaw in her beloved. She describes him here as being altogether lovely. Literally, all of him is lovely. Every feature of him is desirable. There is nothing that she could add that would improve upon him. There is nothing that she could subtract that would improve upon him. As far as she is concerned, he is absolutely perfect. She is unable to criticise him. She can only compliment him. She is unable to condemn him. She can only commend him. That is her assessment. He is altogether lovely, altogether designable. And the woman closes her reflection on her beloved with a word of affirmation. Look at the very end of verse 16. Once again, the bride addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. They had asked her the question, what is your beloved more than another beloved? Tell us why you are going on and on about your beloved. What is there to write home about? And she had given this long description that focused on his appearance, his characteristics, his character, his quality. And while she's been speaking, it's almost as if she has become lost in her own thoughts. It's almost as if she has been in a little world of her own. It's almost as if she is, she is just lost. She's just daydreaming. But she now seems to snap out of it. She comes back to her friend. She addresses the daughters of Jerusalem. And look at what she says. She makes this stunning statement, this stirring affirmation as she addresses the daughters of Jerusalem, her friends and her contemporaries. She says, this is my beloved. And this is my friend. Once again, as we saw this morning, the bride is making use of covenant language, marriage language, as she uses the word my. Her communion, her fellowship with her beloved has been broken. We saw that this morning. And the communion, the fellowship hasn't been restored. She will not find him. She will not speak to him. She will not hear him speaking to her until chapter 6. But her union with him Her relationship with her beloved remains intact. He still belongs to her. She can still say, he is mine. The marriage isn't over. Now friends, as we consider these verses, we are being given a description of Jesus. The woman in this song describes the appearance and the qualities of her beloved. Sees him as being radiant and ruddy, chief among 10,000. She comments on his gold-like head and dark, wavy hair. She comments on his melting eyes, his perfumed beard, his precious words. She comments on his strong arms, his strong chest, his strong legs. She claims that his whole appearance puts her in mind of the temple. And she closes by reflecting on his kisses, his displays of love and affection and tenderness toward her. And that is who Jesus is. He's the one who is chief among 10,000. The one who stands out from the crowd. The one who has precedence, priority, prominence and preeminence over all things. As we see in Colossians chapter 1. The one who is beyond comparison. The one who is beyond compare. He's the one whose hair is wavy and black. He is in the prime of life. The Jesus whom we meet in the Gospels is the same Jesus today. And he is not diminished by age, not diminished by infirmity. He, He is the same. His years have no end, as we see in Psalm 102. He's the one whose eyes are full of compassion. 
He doesn't view his people with indifference and insensitivity. We, as we saw this morning, can look at him and we can be bored by him. We can be indifferent to him. We can be insensitive to him. But he is the one who looks at his people in all of their suffering and all of their sins. And he is moved. He is the one whose beard is fragrant. It's a beard that he allowed to be pulled out as he walked the Calvary Road as he walked the path of suffering and humiliation for his people. You remember when men were doing their very worst to him, they struck him in the face, they pulled out his beard as he was doing his very best for them. He's the one whose words are precious. His words, we're told in Isaiah chapter 50, can sustain the weary. And his words are, as we see in John chapter 6, the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Where else can we look for lasting hope? Where else can we look for real comfort in the face of death? When everything else seems to be swirling around us, then this Jesus, whose words are the words of eternal life. He's the one who is strong. The one who is able to uphold the entire universe. The one who rules over all things. The one who has the government of the world on his shoulders as we see in Isaiah chapter 9. And he is the one who is able to carry every weight, every care, every burden of his people. In fact, he is not simply able to carry their burdens, able to carry their weights. He is also, as we see in Isaiah chapter 46, able to carry them. And he says, I have carried you from your youth. I have carried you from the womb and I will carry you all the way to old age and grey hairs. He is that strong. He is the one who describes himself as being the temple in John chapter 2. He is the one whom Solomon's magnificent temple in Jerusalem pointed forward to. He is the great meeting place between God and man. No one can come to God but through him. And he is the one who displays his love and affection toward his people. You know, some people in life are very hesitant about telling people what their feelings are like. They're very hesitant about saying to their husbands, I love you. They're very hesitant about saying to their wives, I love you, but not Jesus. He is the one who says to his people in Jeremiah 31, I have loved you with an everlasting love, a love that has no, that has such depth, such height, such length, such width, a love that is in a category of its own, a love that Paul says to the Ephesians surpasses knowledge, a love that Jesus has shown in the laying down of his life for his people. Greater love has no one than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. This, friends, is who our Jesus is. But as we consider these verses, we're also seeing the declaration that a person must make concerning this Jesus. The woman in this song makes a personal declaration. She claims that the king is altogether lovely. And she claims that he is her beloved and he is her friend. And the pressing question is, friends, can we say this of Jesus? Can we say that he is altogether lovely? Alexander Moody Stewart writes, Christ is altogether lovely in both his natures, in all his person, in all his character, in all his words, in all his works, in all his ways. He is lovely in his birth, lovely in his infancy, lovely in his boyhood, lovely in his youth, lovely in his manhood, lovely in his mourning, lovely in his rejoicing, lovely in his feasting, lovely in his fasting, 
lovely in his speech, lovely in his silence, lovely as a prophet, as a priest, as a king, lovely as a shepherd, as a saviour, as a husband, lovely sitting on the throne of grace, lovely seated on the throne of judgment, lovely as a son, lovely as a brother, lovely as a servant. Christ is lovely when without pillow whereon to lay his head, and lovely in the mansions of his father, lovely in his rebukes, lovely in his consolations, lovely in his cross, lovely in his crown. He is lovely in himself, lovely in his ordinances, lovely in his saints, lovely yesterday, lovely today, lovely forever. Yea, he is altogether lovely. That is what happens at conversion. There was once a time, you know it yourselves, when we saw nothing lovely in Jesus, nothing attractive in Jesus, nothing that would draw us to Jesus. But in conversion, the Spirit of God opens a person's eyes to see the beauty of God, the majesty of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and they are left saying, He is altogether lovely. Can can you say tonight, friend, he is altogether lovely? You might be saying to yourself, I am not very lovely. You might even be saying to yourself, those round about me aren't very lovely. But can you say, he is altogether lovely? And can we say of him, he is my beloved and he is my friend. That is what a Christian is. They have seen the attractiveness of Jesus and they make this personal affirmation, he is mine. The true and better son of David, the true and better Solomon, the altogether lovely one is mine. We we receive him. We receive the whole Christ, as Sinclair Ferguson says. In a few weeks, Natalie is going to be asked the question, do you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband? And hopefully, hopefully she'll say yes. And in that moment, everything about me, all that I am, all that I have, will belong to her. Every picture of Caithness, every guitar, every one of my wee tramp ornaments, all of it is going to belong to her. And in the same way every Christian has heard the question, will you have this Jesus? Will you take this Jesus? Will you receive this Jesus? And they have said, yes. Yes, I do. They have received Jesus. And not only have they received Jesus, but they have also received all that Jesus has. All the blessings that he offers in the gospel. Friends, we do not receive Jesus' gift of forgiveness without him. We do not receive his gift of sanctification, glorification, adoption into the family of God without him. We receive Jesus, the whole Christ. And as we receive him, we receive all his blessings and all his benefits. So as we close, let me ask the question of everyone who's here tonight and maybe anyone who's watching online. Is the altogether lovely one your beloved? And is he your friend? I'm not asking, is he the beloved, is he the friend of your husband or your wife, your children or your parents? I'm simply asking the question, and maybe it's a question some further back in the room need to ask themselves. Is the altogether lovely one your beloved? 
and the sea. Your friend, do you have this relationship with him? Do you have this union with him?